Welcome to the Don't Break a Leg podcast. I'm Danielle Parzanigan, a dancer and physical therapist specializing in the treatment of performing artists in Houston, Texas. And I'm Jake Manley, an athletic trainer and physical therapist at Pro PT in Winchester, Virginia. I lift weights, and the only time I dance is if I've had a couple beers at a wedding. Though we come from such different backgrounds, we're both incredibly passionate about the performing arts. We hope to educate you on a variety of topics about the health and wellness of performing artists to optimize your performance, longevity, and success. Welcome to the show. Before we get into it, I just want to give you a real quick word from our sponsors. Pro, the company that I work for, which is a pretty awesome company if I may say so myself, is now offering virtual health and wellness coaching to help facilitate you staying active and achieving your goals. You guys can speak one-on-one with me, a licensed physical therapist, athletic trainer, and strength coach, um, to discuss training, injury, rehab, and learn more about how you can stay accountable, take back control, and optimize your health and fitness, even during this, this weird time. Our approach is evidence-based, comprehensive, and focuses entirely on you. One-time consultations as well as long-term programs are available. Regardless of what your specific needs are, we've got you covered. For more information, go ahead and contact me directly. My info will be in the description. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Don't Break a Leg podcast. Today, we're kind of coming full circle. Um, If it wasn't for these two gentlemen, Danielle and I probably would not have met and even started down this road. So we're both super pumped to have uh, John Flagg and Quinn Hennock to come on and talk about stuff. Uh, If you guys don't know John, he's a certified athletic trainer, a strength coach, and instructor of clinical athletes powerlifting coach course. He graduated from Salisbury University. That's the other SU for those of you that know that I went to Shenandoah. uh, Just after the world was born and received his master's from Penn State University. His age is, is probably why his beard is so beautiful. He owns Rebuild Stronger, an online coaching service for strength athletes. His specialty is getting strength athletes over injury and back to training. Quinn has a doctorate of physical therapy from the University of Indianapolis and Bachelor of Science from Val, Val how do you say that? Valparaiso, I should have practiced this before, Valparaiso University. He is the head of athlete rehabilitation for clinical athlete Newport in Orange County, California, which is located inside of a barbell sport facility. SoCal weightlifting. Currently, a large percentage of Quinn's caseload consists of barbell sport athletes who are looking to rehab from injury or reduce the risk of future injury. Quinn works closely with strength and conditioning coaches to ensure the athlete is training safely. Quinn is also the founder of Clinical Athlete, which is a network of healthcare professionals and students who wish to better understand the rehab and performance-based needs of athletes. Welcome to the show, guys. We're really pumped to have you on. Thanks for having us. Um, I mean, we we kind of sadly talked about our yogurt preferences before this started, but I won't I won't bring it up. Quinn's just wrong, and I think that the world needs to know that Nusa is not uh, quality fuel when it comes to uh, performance training. No, I get it. This we're not into taste. We're not into sweet, creamy texture, and uh, we're not into feeling performance. So I got I got it now. We're good. <laughs> Yeah, we just, you need to recognize that we have a very niche audience and I, I, you know, 
we're trying. I'm trying to be more inclusive of other people's tastes when it comes to yogurt. Um, but I just like my implicit biases just tell me that you are in fact wrong. Uh, I don't have any RCTs that I can quote, um, but maybe one day. Um, I just won't have Michael Amato come on because I know that it's going to be completely butchered when it comes to the results and interpretation of my data that I present. Um, anyways, for we probably lost all of our listeners on that tangent, um, but we, we would like to talk with you guys about um, barbell training. Uh, as Danielle and I have talked about on this podcast many times before, this is something that tends to be uh, very stigmatized and to be kind of like divisive within the performing arts community. You know, there's a lot of fear about getting bulky, that it's going to change the aesthetics of performance. And it just seems that <clears throat> a lot of times barbell training or resistance training in general um, is just not very accessible to the dance population, which tends to be a, you know, a high percentage of that is, is female athletes. And so really we just wanted to get this kind of rolling and, and see what your thoughts were on um, – you know, getting people into using resistance training and maybe kind of demystifying the barbell. So, yeah. Um, you know, I, for, at least for me, you and Danielle, Jake have a lot more experience with this population than I do. I'll just preface my experience with it. Mostly stems back into physical therapy school. So several years ago, my last rotation was in San Francisco and we worked with quite a bit of the uh, San Francisco ballet and off and on have had experience, you know, since then, but in order, you know, cause my default is, well, just, you know, education and these types of things. But, well, I know that that sometimes just doesn't work just because you say this is why you should do it. doesn't mean the person buys into that idea. So I guess I would maybe th for me, throw it back to you guys and, from an education, from just from a communication piece, what seems to to not work in regards to these situations when you're trying to get an athlete to you know pick up a bar, or lift some weights, and you just say no, this is going to help you with X, Y, Z. Does is that effective, or is it effective with a certain type of person? I think for me that'll help to anchor the conversation. So I think for the most part, it's not effective with any dancer, regardless of how much education you put into it, because the stigma of dance and the culture of dance over the generations has been that you have to be as lean as possible, as like your lines have to be as skinny as they can be to make the art form as beautiful as it can be. And anything that's not a toning form of exercise, they see as something that's going to be an adverse reaction to that aesthetic of the art form. So. I was told many times in college to stop lifting weights. I mean, it, I was not lifting heavy, but I was definitely lifting. And they said, you need to stop your upper body and your lower body is getting too bulky. You may think that it's helping you, but really it's just detracting from your professional outlook in the sport if you really want you know, to be at the top of your game, which obviously I don't believe, but that's what teachers and coaches will tell you. Yeah, I think it's a very it's a very unique cultural identity um, where there's a lot of I mean, when you when you look at it, it's just a very especially ballet. It's a very like traditional, um, I guess, is appeal to authority in a, in a lot of senses. 
it's very, very focused on looking a having a specific aesthetic, as Danielle said, having specific lines, and it's this like almost artificial idea of what someone is supposed to look like. Um, and I think that kind of just gets permeated into the culture around it, right? Like there's this almost unattainable aesthetic for some people because some people's bodies just aren't built that way. Um, and Danielle, I know you've said that you had gotten comments about like how you would probably be better at, I believe it was ballet versus jazz or modern just because right. of the way that your body structure was when you yeah. were because I was naturally, well, I didn't lift weights as a kid ever because everyone told me not to. And so, you know, I didn't have a lot of muscle mass on my arms at all, which is the goal in ballet. And, you know, I fell victim to the female athlete triad reds thing growing up a lot to try to make the best career of my dance that I could. And so I had a very lean, frail aesthetic, which is what they want. So they were like, you're going to make it into the big leagues. Like you got this down. You shouldn't try to do jazz or modern because those athletes do have air quotes, a bulkier appearance because they're required to jump higher to do more acrobatic movement. So they tailor you to go into the discipline that suits your body and not, it's not what you necessarily want though. Obviously you have some choice, but yeah. And so I think, I think we kind of had this like bred into the identity of like who a dancer is. Um, and you have this like very traditional approach of like, well, we've never done barbell training. Barbell training is something that is potentially seen as like threatening or dangerous because, mm -hmm. you know, if you don't have correct form, if you don't have, uh, someone who knows what they're doing, coaching you, you're probably going to hurt yourself. Right. I think there's a lot of this, even though when you look at what a dancer does, the movements and things that they perform on stage are incredible when it comes to what their body is capable of doing. But at the same time, we almost have this inherent fear that like, you know, if you deadlift 95 pounds, you're going to hurt your spine or you're going to blow your back out. Right. Mm -hmm. Or that somehow like even looking at a dumbbell is going to make you bulky and not aesthetic. And <clears throat> so it's just like this very pervasive culture and identity, um, that kind of breeds like aversion to strength training. Right. Yeah. And so we see the, these like dancer conditioning classes where they basically do ballet with like a one pound pink dumbbell. And that somehow is going to make them better at dancing, right? And it's just like, I don't know. It's it's a culture that, like, we are actively obviously trying to combat because we don't think that it should be the way that it is. Yeah. Um, and I think there is a big push within the community to kind of change that. I think a lot of the, the younger clinicians that are coming out um, <clears throat> have more of a strength training background and are doing things to provide – you know, like what they typically call cross training in that community. Yeah. Uh, but it's just still something that's like very, very pervasive. And so I think having different people's voices and perspectives on how to, um, you know, demystify some of those stigmas is just really important. Yeah. And if they are to do any form of cross training, it'll be yoga or Pilates or gyrotonic or gyrokinesis, which is, it's basically yoga with a machine. So when they say cross training, like if you ask a dancer if they do cross training, they will probably say yes. But then when you peer more into that, you just realize it's in no way are they adding any weight to their body. So. 
This is a, a really interesting topic because it correlates so much with the running community from like 20 years ago where, you know, especially the marathon community, the competitive marathon community, smaller, 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 lighter frame, you run faster. Uh, and, and they ran into very similar problems when it came to injury rates, uh, especially reds for female athletes was a, was a big concern. And that change happened from inside. And they're still, you know, 20 years later, still going through this process of not just clinicians and coaches, but also other athletes trying to educate uh, athletes who've been running for a while the benefits of strength training. So it's almost one of those things where prominent athletes have to make a change um, or, or younger athletes have to make a change and, and change the culture within probably younger coaches uh, coming, coming to the forefront and, and starting to incorporate these things. And really a lot of it's also myth busting. You know, we talk about uh, the education can sometimes fall flat basically because there is that wall brought mm-hmm. about by the culture, but <laughs> not to, not to get, you know, predictive processing here, but all we're trying to do is, is violate that expectation. If you have an individual that feels as though they're going to get bulky and you leverage things like strength training and you show them, let's take ballet. You mentioned, you know, you want a, a very slender upper body. Well, doing lower body strength training isn't going to put a ton of mass on people. It's probably going to give you higher peaks of your jumps. It's probably going to allow some some tissue adaptation that's going to allow you to dance for longer at higher intensities and improve some of that look. And you don't have to put a ton of mass on really to begin with in, in really any body part. If we look at the prevention of things like reds, using strength training as a complementary portion of it, We'll typically get, hopefully, get people to uh, increase their intake of food because they're burning more calories. There's a whole bunch of other things. Now, there's it's a double-edged sword because we've seen the impact of orthorexia in other sports, and especially college females who, you know, are first introduced to the gym, and it's like, well, I'm just going to run and and run every day, 12 times a day, uh, and and what that kind of effect has. But, you know, it's this gradual change in culture that it's going to take time. It's going to probably take years and it's going to happen from the inside. My best example of that currently is the to to correlate a little bit with dance would be the Russian women's national gymnastics team versus the United States women's gymnastic team. One incorporates a good amount of strength training in the offseason and you can see the result that that creates. The Russian team still does not. And look at the medal count. Mm-hmm. They're more competitive. They're healthier throughout the year. And they're they're dominant. I mean, you know, it, again, it is different. Uh, a lot of dancers are probably going, we're not gymnasts. I know, I know you're not. Um, but it at least has some level of correlation that, that we can look at um, in regards to, to what's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, Danielle and Jacob, you have this this pervasive thought in the sport. I mean, Danielle, you were describing it even, even as you come up. It's just mm-hmm. culture is don't lift. I mean, it's explicit. Don't lift weights for X, Y, Z. And that's just the way that you're brought in. I would assume, well, when you guys get that from the from the dancer, from the athlete to say, uh, I don't want to get bulky, 
or lifting weights will make me bulky. I would assume that you come back with some form of no, it won't. <laughs> so, so just with that assumption, what is the pushback from there? Is it that they just don't believe you or is it that they try it and then they just tail off? Like what are the patterns that you see after you guys hit them with that, you know, obvious rebuttal? I, I would say a lot of it has to do with like access, right? Like if they're coming to me in the clinic and I'm working with them like for a rehab of ankle, knee, whatever it is, obviously like me being me, I'm going to load them at some point, right? I'm going to try to introduce them to complex resistance training movements. A lot of times it starts out small with like kettlebells, goblet squats. And then eventually if they're there for a while, like we will introduce a barbell. But the thing is, like, <clears throat> after their rehab session or after they're done, you know, like coming to me for PT, where are they going to get that load from, you know? And so I feel like uh, hopefully my goal is always to do a really good job of, like, empowering the person I'm working with, try to show them that they're they're capable of so much more and that they're oftentimes a lot stronger than they think they are and that these movements aren't inherently bad or dangerous or scary and that they're able to do them. They're able to do them effectively and it's going to over time help them improve what they want to do on the stage. But then the question then becomes like, you know, maybe they spend four to six weeks with me in the clinic. What happens after that? Right. They're not going to, most of them don't have access to at least the high school and middle school girls that I work with. They're not actively going to a gym if they're a high school dancer, it's not like they have access to their weight room because the weight room at school is going to be reserved for off-season football or basketball or wrestling or whoever. And then when they go into their studio, they're not getting these same messages from their, their instructors, right? They're coming from an environment where maybe we've dismantled a lot of their myths, the myths and stigmas around what they believe, but then they go right back into that environment where they're getting bombarded with, you know, oh, did your PT do this with you? Don't do that because that's wrong. Like he, he clearly is, doesn't know what he's doing. And, you know, I think that that's where, because they're going right back into that, like very explicit culture of like, you know, barbell is bad that it almost kind of like puts them at a, you know, like a crossroads where it's like, who do I believe? So then who's our audience right now? We're trying to make a change. Sounds like it's more of the top top maybe a top-down approach if the athletes are kind of buying in when you've got them in front of your face and they've got access to the equipment that they leave you it's now it doesn't matter if it's a conversation to the athlete they don't have it around them and they don't have the authority to continue to you know appreciate that aspect of training uh, or encourage that aspect of training mm -hmm. what have you what is there to do from from that level is is it are the are instructors generally open to conversations you know i'm likening this for me having conversations with sport coach strength mm -hmm. conditioning coach that type of thing is that something that you guys are able to get in with or the, is that level a lot of times closed off for you as far as communication so i, I think i have a little bit of an advantage like i've been there done that type thing and so when I get into the studios and I speak to the managers, I feel that they are 
receptive to the information, especially when I tell them that when I started using barbell training, that I got stronger in my dance performance. They're like, oh, really? Like, you felt better? And I'm like, yes, like, it's not that crazy of an idea. But I think, like Jake said, the access to the equipment is the hardest part of it for them once they bought in because studio owners honestly are not going to put a barbell in their studio because it's going to like scare people out the door there's that would be an incredibly hard sell that i don't think will happen in the following years but there aren't that many strength and conditioning coaches or rehab professionals who are working outside of the clinic environment who can train these girls on their own because like jake said i work with kids and their parents aren't comfortable with them going to the gym and just doing whatever. So I think that's the hardest part of once they bought in, how do, what do we do from there? And Danielle is certainly because we've, we've had conversations outside of this, like networking with uh, studios and trying to like kind of get our names out there in our respective communities. Um, I haven't had as much success. Um, Granted, there's been a lot of like, obviously like barriers this year into to me doing that with like COVID and whatnot. Um, but I also think it's, it's different for me than it is for Danielle because like, I don't have the dance background, right? Like I'm just a clinician. And so I think that I have to, because I'm like a, you know, like a meatball of a human being that just like does strong man, you know, like when I walk into a dance studio, I'm like the antithesis of what they're looking for, you know? <laughs> and so I think I don't pass, like, I don't pass the sniff test, um, up front, you know, like I don't have the visual appeal of like a dancer, but I think, so for me, it's a little bit of an uphill battle because I have to show my value and show that I know what I'm talking about. And that happens a lot with the dancers that come in the door. Like I have really have to use my knowledge and my understanding that like I know terminology and I speak their language to be able to kind of leverage my position and kind of get my foot in the door. And so I think when it comes to like the dance cheer gymnastics community, like where I'm at, um, I'm at a little bit of a disadvantage because, you know, it just seems like I'm coming from a, a different place. That's kind of, you know, just not really acceptable in that community. Um, and so I do think that, you know, we, we have to educate instructors and we have to kind of change the culture within the studio to make it so it's more, um, I guess, for lack of a better term, like progressive with today's like stress science stuff. Um, but find creative ways to do loaded training without maybe the use of a barbell or try to find ways to have more access to the community, you know? And that's one thing that like we're in my clinic, we're actively trying to get a, like a, a dancer strength and conditioning program going with the university and trying to like offer things where it is relatively inexpensive, where they've got access to people that can coach them and where you can kind of create hopefully an environment that empowers them so that they know that these things are safe, they feel comfortable with the movements and then they're able to go, hey, now that I know how to do this, like even if I go to Gold's gym, like I've got equipment that I can use. So. But it's really interesting when you bring that up, there seems to be quite a bit of a perception driven kind of angle here you mentioned before there's dancing conditioning classes where you know it's a one pound bell and really it's that what they want to see is really similar to the sport specific training that we we saw in the late 90s and early 2000s where people want to see 
their conditioning and strength training as close to mimicking the sport as possible. So for them, it's like, well, we'll just do the same routine with a one pound dumbbell. And obviously a barbell looks substantially different than a, than a, any dance routine. I mean, mm-hmm. a deadlift is definitely different than anything they're going to do. But I have to remind people in, in this instance that a barbell is just a tool. It's a simple tool. Now, Quinn and I obviously gravitate towards it based off the sports that we compete in. I have to use a barbell in powerlifting. However, uh, an easier kind of blend in that can look a little bit more fluid and rhythmic is something like a kettlebell. Less intimidating, takes up less space in a studio. A lot of the movements, you take something like a Turkish getup, you take certain type of snatch and swing variations, and they can look explosive. They can be loaded accordingly, and the barrier of entry is also lower. So there's a middle ground that can still be struck where it doesn't necessarily look like dancing with a pink dumbbell, but it serves that functional purpose and at least perceptively may check a box off for people to say, hey, look, you can still do some of this stuff and and get the benefit from it and not have to worry about buying like a barbell and a, a rack and like all that other stuff. Because that you I mean you mentioned before, you typically start people off with goblet squats anyway. Um, you, sh- you show them, hey, this is what we can end up looking like with this. And maybe you, you increase a little bit of buy in there. Mm-hmm. And I think that this also kind of blends into a larger conversation that we often have in this world of like sports special words, sports specialization, right? Like the I think the prevalent thought within the dance community is that the only way that I can get better at dancing is to just do this same routine over and over and over and over and over again. Right. And we, when we were talking with Derek, I mean, he pointed out that even the language that we use, right, like a recital, that inherently in using the term recital, the implication is that it's going to be perfect from like what it's supposed to look like. Right. Like that you can't have any variability in the performance that you're doing. Everything has to be uniform. It has to look a specific aesthetic way. And so we kind of get into this world of like how much is too much just repetition of the same thing over and over again and how you know should we integrate in these like non specific movements to create some sort of general base of strength power explosiveness what have you to supplement the the technical mastery of it right cuz there certainly is a massive te- technical mastery component to like doing a choreographed dance but it's like how do we find that line and how do we communicate with that with people that like you don't only have to do dance to get better at dance because we see it in other sports, right? Like every, every major sport has an off season, you know, it's not like, especially with, um, with baseball, there's like people that don't even throw a ball for like two, two months out of the year, you know, football off season training, like the NCAA has regulations on even being able to have like coaches or, or, or balls on the field for so much of the off season. But we, like as a culture, we don't have those same thoughts when it comes to dance or even gymnastics. You know, if we're going to bring that back into the discussion. Yeah. It is an interesting comparison. Some of those sports with chaotic environments are, are different than what we're saying here is that the, the, the environment for a dancer is not going to jump out and surprise them. Mm-hmm. And so they can deliberate practice on their specific routine is, is their specific routine. And that's 
ideally going to be the same on the stage as in the practice hall. So there is some element of deliberate practice and just and getting your reps in. But, you know, I, I think maybe you could leverage when if an athlete is improving or they're exactly where they want to be, a dancer is exactly where they want to be. It's a harder sell because they don't have anything to lose. They you, people are much more loss averse than they are uh, when not averse. <laughs> they, they, they're scared of losses more than they like wins, and that's just kind of human nature. And so, if if you can leverage that to some extent, where um, maybe they're hitting some type of performance plateau, whatever that would be for a dancer, either they're not consistent in their routine and they've been putting the reps in as much as anybody else, or their bodies kind of hit this ceiling where they're not able to hit certain positions or get lift or whatever it is, but they're putting the reps in, then that's, you know, they're losing that aspect of it. Then that's more leverage that you can gain and say, Hey, we can build those qualities that you can then use, but you've got to kind of, you've got to inject it into context that they care about not to say that the, the dancer who is everything's going perfectly and they don't lift weights still, you still can't get some buy-in because then maybe the, then maybe it's an idea of uh, injury risk reduction or something like that. Just making the body more resilient in general and say, well, you don't want to get hurt. Nocebo alert, uh, but strength training can help you continue. So you're nailing it. You're killing it right now. I mean, strength training can help you continue that longer it can give you a, a deeper well that you can tap into from that standpoint but you try to like this is kind of on an individual basis you know if you're trying to get buy-in from the particular dancer itself um and then you know as a broader whole but i think you've you just got to create some context for them as uh, and and you know figure out where their pain points are to take advantage of that to some extent um, and also, can I just defend the color pink for a second? It's not, we've been saying these pink dumbbells, you know, it's like a negative. <laughs> if you pay the barbell, you pay 315 pounds pink, it's still, you know, pink is just fine. It's the, it's the, uh, it's the load I think we're getting after just, just for the listeners. In, um, in, I like in, pink. The, in the clinic, I actually took our heaviest kettlebells and painted them solid pink oh, for no. the, for this, for the same reason we had two 60 pound kettlebells they are huge. And I painted them bright pink. And then somebody came in and put little uh, googly eyes on them and a pig nose in the front. It was great. They were awesome. Was that pink, Jake? <laughs> I think that also speaks to a lot of like, um, I mean, you, you see it with like, there's just kind of like this per- pervasive idea that like gender roles in the lifting community, you know, like you, cause you always see pink and purple as like the lowest um, weights. And I, that's like a completely different conversation. Um, but I, I think that, like that stems from the notion that, you know, we make it more quote unquote appealing to women by making it pink or purple, which like you said, I'd rather paint all my 45 pound weights like pink and have somebody rep 315. Um, cause I just, I like the color is irrelevant, right? There's nothing wrong with color pink. Um, <laughs> but it, it just happens that those are often the, the color dumbbells for like one and two pounds. Yeah, and Jake, you know, mentioned that you've maybe had a harder time than Danielle to try to kind of get get these ideas across, just because somebody knowing your background, knowing you weren't a dancer, knowing you're a strong man, and that you lift weights, it may be perceived as you're just trying to inject your 
what you like on to them and there's no connection. No, he likes to lift weights. He's a weightlifter and he's just trying to get us to do that because that's what he does. We're dancers. He doesn't understand that. And I know that's the barrier that you're, you know, you're communicating through and you're showing your value and all that stuff. But, you know, just continuing to inject and get as close as possible to what taps into their emotions and their emotions are their performance and the, and their level of performance compared, you know, they're looking at their peers. And so it's not, it's not taking advantage of, of people's emotions, but it's, it's getting to the root of what they care about and making a case for that with the type of treatment and the type of, of training and just essentially lifestyle that you're, that you're trying to, that you think will help. Um, but if it's just, the problem is if you're staying on these surface level conversations where lifting weights will make me bulky. No, it won't. You should do it. It's hard. It's hard that way because they're you're you're fighting an uphill battle um, constantly because of what we've talked about already. But I really like John's idea of going with lower barrier to entry and just in getting kettlebells and dumbbells. My mind even went to and I you know you probably kicked me off the show immediately. But I was thinking of a place that's low cost, low barrier to entry, probably feels safe for somebody who's not used to lifting weights. He's going to say PF. Yes. Here it comes. But but so I'll just say PF and you guys can look that up. Uh, no, Planet Fitness. Is, it was just like an idea like that, a place like that. Here's a safe environment. They have weights. They don't have barbells, but they have weights. They have way more weights than somebody who doesn't lift weights has. But when you mentioned that your place, your gym, or your uh, your clinic, or at least at the university, potentially something like that, like a strength and conditioning facility for dancers, I think that's tremendous. I think access is huge here. You guys, it sounds like to me, you're hitting, you're breaking down that barrier with the communication. You're getting the you're getting the dancers to start to buy into it a little bit. But access. I mean, that's it. Like all the best education in the world, if they don't have them, if they don't have that stuff at their disposal after they leave you, I mean, that's, that's it. Yeah. You know, I love barbells. I haven't lifted a bar in eight weeks because I didn't have access to it because of the, you know, everything going on. So first eight back felt great though, didn't it? Actually, no, I, every muscle in my body is <laughs> I am miserable. Even, even with all the K-Box stuff? Yeah. I wasn't doing it very often. You, I, I posted every time I did it, and I've made like three posts in the last <laughs> eight weeks. So, um, I, I do have a, another question, kind of along these lines. We're talking about pain points. Um, with the sport or the participant, I, I'm going to call it a sport of dance. Just call it a sport. Call it a sport. Yeah, it's it. It is. It is. If you, I mean, it just it is. Um, but they don't like to be like dancers. Don't like to be called athletes, right? Or is that not? Yes and no. Okay. We'll we'll hit on that after John's question. Um, I, it's still a very subjectively measured performance, correct? Yes. So you know, one of the I work with a couple of bodybuilders, and one of the difficult portions of that sport is that it is so subjective; it's very difficult to measure progress outside of a few things. Um, what? we try to focus on being process oriented and not only just outcome oriented uh, is the, the change in KPIs or key performance indicators based off their performances in the gym. I'm lifting this heavier or this feels easier. 
we don't have to like focus completely on like the weight, but the nice thing about strength training is it is completely objective. The either what you're lifting is heavier or was easier uh, <laughs> or it wasn't. So if you have a dancer that struggles, especially with a subjective nature, and like Quinn said, performance is variable. You may be at a high right now. There's going to be a point where you're like frustrated with your routine and you're just not hitting things the way that you were before. It's hard when it's completely subjective to pinpoint, okay, well, what's going on? Well, if performance also in the gym or, or with your, your basic strength training is also suffering, then we can have some uh, at least objective measures to look into there uh, as opposed to only having subjective, which can really, psychologically speaking, you know, break you up and, and become very, very difficult for people and frustrating. Now, that's – I also deal with powerlifters that don't see their numbers improve, and that's a super objective measure that's also very frustrating. But it, it at least gives them a little bit more data to, to work off of. What, what is your guys' thoughts on that in particular? Or am I completely off base? No, I agree with that. I think everything you do in dance is really subjective, which makes the art form challenging as someone trying to work as a rehab professional in that realm. But you can subjectively grade how well you can turn, right? How many repetitions can you do? How high do you subjectively feel like you're jumping? Are you able to do more skills in the air before you touch back down to the ground? because you're able to get more flight in the air. And then just subjectively, are you getting more roles? Are your teachers saying that you're doing better or are they giving you feedback that you're not doing well or just they're not giving you feedback at all because they think you're sucking, which is the worst thing that can happen is they just stop talking to you because they feel like you're not doing well. They're like, well, she's the lost cause. Like, just ignore her. She'll drop out of the sport eventually. Because you kind of self-select out of it at a certain point, like once you reach the 14, 15 year old range, the dropout rate is huge because that's where you really start to peak and like get where you need to be and start auditioning for companies. But if you started being social with your friends and like being a normal high school student and like going out and doing all those things, you're going to suffer in dance, or at least that's what they want you to believe that you need to be like eat breathe, dance, sleep a little bit. Like that's, that's your life. And that's why around the 15, 16 year old range, you're going to start training 20 hours a week at a minimum. If you really want to make it. That, that silent treatment's like your mom or dad looking at you going, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Yeah. It's yeah. like, Oh, they won't even say anything anymore. Yeah. Oof. And that's something that we see. Cause we, we talked about this with Christina when we had her on, is that like the the peak age in gymnasts is like 14 to 16, mm -hmm. right? And it's the same thing. It's not quite the same thing with dance, but as Danielle said, like that's when you're starting to get into companies and really start to take things seriously, right? Like that's when a gymnast would turn professional. That's when a dancer may start thinking about pursuing it as a career or getting on, you know, in with a professional company. And so like, it's just, it's, it's weird. And Quinn had kind of talked about this before with like, you know, using these non dance things to improve longevity. And when we want to improve longevity with a dancer, like we need to start thinking about having a different peak age, you know, Christina made the point that, um, who's, I can't even think of her name. 
who's our who's the best gymnast right now for America? Simone Biles. Simone Biles. That's right. That because of her her background, like she was adopted and she didn't start with gymnastics and didn't specialize as early. She's much older than a traditional gymna- uh, gymnast and she's crushing it. Right. Like, and that there are other gymnasts who are like 35, 40 years old that still compete in the Olympics, but they're the outlier because mm-hmm. we have this like culture that's very much set up to, uh, try to f- almost force a peak age early. So like, I know it's com- kind of a different conversation, but I think it, it just lumps in with this whole discussion. I had worked with a competitive figure skater and found out that world because she was 15 and she basically told me she just aged out and I was like, what? And I mean, she was very competitive. Uh, it just at that point, they were like, "Okay, well, you're not at this point at this age, so it's like time to go to college and, and look at a different route. Like you can still figure skate, but it's <laughs> probably not going to be to the level that you know where we would like to see you." It's like, oh, okay. And like, how messed up is it that like a 14, 15 year old kid? has to make that decision like, well, I can't go pro. Like my life is ruined. My career, my dreams, my aspirations are completely crushed because like I'm I'm too old or my technique's not good enough. And it's like if we had maybe changed the structure of this and like just just done this differently, like maybe that wouldn't be the case, you know? Maybe when they'd start hitting their stride when they're 23, 24, 25 and and crush it in international competitions but because we have this whole like system set up where 15 is aging out that we're kind of like limiting people's progress and potential yeah it definitely needs it definitely would have to be a a, a global shift because the the flip side of it is the gym the u.s gymnast that used to be the best in the world gabby douglas who won the all-around gold in 2012 four years later she grew she was bigger, she was taller, and she was heavier, and she was not as good. And she those those four years changed. And then Simone Biles is older, but she just different body. Mm-hmm. She stayed the size that she is. And Gabby, I mean, it was a different. It looked like a different human four years later, just physically. And that's nothing that she could have controlled. So that's the other side of it. Is this is how you know she did better as a smaller because that's the way the sport is set up. I mean, you know, we're getting into layers and layers and layers deep here. From a from a dancer standpoint, though, I'm not sure because of the we're not talking about as much aerial type of of things. I don't think, to your point, Jake, that that has to be that extreme or what you went through, Daniel. You lived, Danielle, you lived through it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um. So, you know, I don't have an answer there. I have no idea how to change how to change the sport. Essentially, is what we're talking about. It's not just the cultural like belief change. It's probably changing how you interpret the sport. You know, if you're going to shift uh, what you would consider peak age, because bodies will do different things. 13 or 14 year olds going to do maybe slightly different things, better or for worse, than a 25, 26 year old, or to look different. Um, but you know. Going back to the kind of the training aspect of things, I don't, I don't know if, how explicit you guys have been in your previous shows or how explicit we've been, but as far as the bulky thing, like we can just explicitly say here, just to make it a point so that in case people think we're being wishy-washy, um, yes, lifting weights in a certain way will build muscle. That's what bodybuilders do. That's literally their sport. They don't build their muscles by not lifting weights. However, they lift weights in a very, in a very specific way to build muscle. 
the volumes are really high and they're trying to induce fatigue and it's much different. It's like if you've ever done a bicep curl to muscular failure, as many reps as you can possibly do. Now do that 10,000 more times and that'll build some really nice muscle. Um, but I think, you know, what we're talking about is, is lighter or lower amount of work. You're not going to do nearly as many reps and you're going to ask the muscles to move uh, kind of quickly. And you're, the goal is maximizing force. But if you think about weight lifting or barbell sport athletes who are in weight classes, they need to be as strong as possible. But especially the, the smaller athletes, they need to be as strong as possible, but not put muscle on because they don't want to go to the next weight class because they'll, they'll lose. So think about it like that. And you know, oh, there must be a way to lift weights and have it not be just this linear relationship between lifting weights and building muscle. Mm-hmm. There are ways, you know, Jacob and Danielle are experts at this, at prescribing weightlifting so that it gives you what you need for your sport. And if building muscle is not building more muscle is not what you need for your sport, there are ways to prescribe weight training to avoid that and give you the stuff that we want, which is increased force production or uh, an improved ability of your body to absorb forces repeatedly, which you're going to do as a dancer. Um, And I'm sure these conversations have been stressed again and again and again, but sometimes it's good to hear it from somebody different. Oh no! Yeah, yeah. completely yeah. agree. And I and think it, when Quinn did started, I mean to cut you off, John. No, you're good. Uh, it, it's just I'm just gonna kind of expand on that a little bit. When you look at at it from a practical standpoint, in regards to the the training, I'm a powerlifter. My my sessions last anywhere from two to three hours because I'm practicing my sport. We're not saying it, as a dancer you would have to like that's how long is is dance practice. It's probably multiple times a day as well, right? Daniel? Yeah. Typically, if if you're like a 15-year-old, you're probably training three hours at a time, five days a week, and then a little bit on the weekend. So you're putting the same amount of effort into dance that I'm putting into powerlifting. I do some supplementary cardio stuff. I, I, I roll in jiu No. Uh, <laughs> I, all I have is like a, a shoulder pump thing and a hip wiggle, and I can't even coordinate those two things. And my six-year-old daughter looks at me and is like, no, dad, stop. It's just, it's not, I, I don't have any moves, but I do some, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and stuff to support some cardiovascular health. And that's 15 to 45 minutes, two to three days a week. It's not a whole lot because that's not my sport, but it supports my general health. It makes me feel better overall. And especially flexibility wise and and getting through my training sessions, it supported my, my energy levels and my performance with a really small time commitment. Quinn mentioned bodybuilders. I know a couple bodybuilders that train six, seven days a week for four hours. That's their sport. This is what that they are doing to get that big. They're doing what you're doing to get better at dance, which is a large commitment. That's not what we're talking about. 15, 30, 45 minutes at some point in the day, three, two, three times a week, it's probably going to be sufficient to support some of the things that we're talking about here. And in your off season, when you're not dancing as frequently, because that it never stops. It is from what I pick up, dance never really has an off season, but you can maybe increase that a little bit 
to maybe four days a week and decrease the time. But we're not talking about a, a large amount of stimulus here. It's just something to support your sport, not replace or impede it. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm right there with you guys. Cause I feel like, you know, to go back to that perception piece, I think sometimes we just equate weightlifting with the sport of potentially bodybuilding or powerlifting. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, sorry, Quinn. A lot of people just don't think about Olympic weightlifting. Um, unless you're, you're in that group, even though it's an Olympic sport, it's fine. I know. <laughs> for now, <laughs> but I, I think like that tends to be like a, a lot of times, like the public perception that like that you participating in these supplementary activities is, is the same as you participating in that sport. Right. And there's a lot of other things and variables that go into that sport. Right. You in order to get that big, like you have to be in a caloric surplus. And that's a whole nother discussion when it comes to the world of dance, because a lot of a lot of people aren't even in a positive energy balance. Right. They're usually on the other end of the spectrum. So if you're looking at like how many calories you consume, uh, the frequency and time that you're, you would be participating in these activities, odds are like you're, you're you know, from a biological, physiologic standpoint, you're probably not even not in a position where you're going to add mass to your body. It's muscle right? maintenance, if anything else. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that's that's the big thing right there is like unless you're in a caloric surplus, unless you're constantly pushing, whether like, you know, you're going for the pump or like fatigue, true muscle failure or pushing the bounds of what you're capable of, you know, from a, a strength standpoint, you're probably not going to have the stimulus to even get to that point. You know, even if you put on a pound a year, two pounds a year of muscle, it's not going to change how you fit in your your um, costumes or or anything that you would have for a stage piece. You know, like that overall adding two pounds to a hundred pound frame, because most dancers are probably going to weigh around around there if we're talking like 14, 15 year old girls. Right. Like that's not going to be a, a massive overall addition. But the positive benefits that you would get from that consistent training, even just as a supplement would be probably massive. Right. And just, just cause I know John and I have talked about this, um, using like kettlebells and stuff. And that's, that's what I, I spoke about at I items last year. And I'm like a big proponent of that being a, an entry point for resistance training in the dance world. Like my ideal setup would be if we could just get some kettlebells in a studio and instead of doing, you know, quote unquote, dance conditioning, where people are just doing crunches and more bodyweight squats, like let's spend 20 minutes and do some, a couple sets of goblet squats or some deadlifts, right? Maybe throw a couple of Turkish getups or some presses in there. And if we just spent like 20, 30 minutes, even just two times a week to start, like that, that little bit of supplementation might yield some really positive results. Yeah. Right. And again, yeah. not equating it with the sports of bodybuilding, powerlifting or weightlifting, yep. but using it as a supplementary thing to improve your overall performance on the stage. I, I think the movements themselves, too, uh, will provide some type of context, even like a single leg deadlift. If you ex- explain it in a certain way, a single leg deadlift somewhat looks like a lot right. of times what they're doing. Single, a step up, uh, you know, even a single leg uh, a split squat into a jump when you hold dumbbells by your sides. There's a lot of things that could be done that would, I think, provide a little bit more context that maybe they would relate to and accept. You know, and the, and I'm talking even from the instructor standpoint, probably more mm-hmm. so their standpoint because they're going to be the ones allowing this to happen. 
Yeah. Right. Unless they, unless you guys are able to come in and kind of lead the group, which would be cool. Uh, but yeah, I think that's, and if, and you know, worst case scenario, if that's where it stayed, but that was consistently embedded into the culture, tremendous change, I would imagine. Even if you never get to the barbell, you know, there's this kind of holding pattern at kettlebells within the studio. That's still a tremendous shift from where it sounds like it is currently, right? Yeah. And I think like even Danielle, we've we've had discussions like this before where, you know, a lot of common complaints that we get from dancers are things like, you know, my teacher is saying that I'm like maybe overarching my back, right? Like my lines aren't great with my arabesque, which Quinn, that's that's the RDL, right? The arabesque would be the RDL. Um, and so when, when we see these things like where someone is trying to force more motion or compensate a movement a specific way, if we can improve their strength with like an RDL single leg hip extension, which is close enough to the dance movement that they're doing on stage and try to get them to use more glute versus like trying to force stuff through the low back. Not only is their tolerance for that motion going to improve and potentially if they're having discomfort, like maybe make something less painful because we've introduced a novel way of doing that motion. A lot of times doing things like that actually helps improve the aesthetic performance of that motion. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause we see, I mean, one of the common complaints I see and I, I Danielle, I don't know if this is, you, I'm, I imagine you see probably quite a bit of this is like uh, turnout. Like, hey, my turnout is different. My turnout's asymmetrical, right? Where people are trying to, in the dance world, the turn is like, like grip your glutes or like really try and, and use your big, uh, bigger muscles to try and force that. Um, and if we can find ways to improve strength, maybe introduce some novel exercises or a novel stimulus to change, like maybe how they're doing that, um, it makes a huge difference. And I've seen, you know, going back to the discussion of like subjective and versus objective measures, I've seen uh, dancers I've worked with that came in with asymmetrical turnout um, that we did maybe two to three weeks of like just some kettlebell deadlifts. And not only did their pain decrease, but they're coming in saying like, hey, my teacher's saying that like my turnout and my plies look way better. And then I'm able to like hit my lines better. Then I'm able to get my leg up higher and it's not dropping or that I don't look like I'm like forcing, you know, my glutes. And so I think like, again, like even just introducing a very small dose of this stuff would be enough of an effective dose to create some pretty significant change. Well, and then we're still talking about physiological differences and, and movement differences on an individual level. We're not even talking about team development and culture development in mm-hmm. regards to like a, a company. Dance, uh, from my outside knowledge, uh, in in a company, in practice as a team, is a bit of a pressure cooker. Uh, it, it's always measuring one against the other in the company. Having something that's not necessarily so structured and stringent to get the team involved in like a, a group training session or a circuit training session in this type of manner could be really productive and help with the psychological health of the team, health of the team um, by just taking some of that pressure off and allowing, allowing kids to have a little bit of fun when we know it's a positive benefit on the performance aspect as well. And I think that, John, that speaks to another thing that we see in the dance and performing arts world is just like not developing physical literacy, right? Like you have these these people that are 
specializing in sport very early. They're like, they're not even really getting enough of a novel stimulus to learn how to do like other basic athletic movements. <laughs> right. Like they're pretty much only doing ballet or, you know, I mean, I feel like ballet is probably the big entry point for a lot of people uh, from a young age, but like, I mean, that's something that Christina talked about when we had her on. She's like, sometimes like for, for class, like when gymnastics, we just go play kickball. And she's like, you'd be surprised how many like teenage girls don't know how to, to catch a ball or throw it or kick a ball because they've just been in this environment. And so I think, I think what's John saying, like doing something to not only like take away some of the psychological and like social pressures of being in that environment, but also just doing something to develop like basic movement competency and like physical literacy would be huge in as part, like just changing the culture. Yeah. I, I keep going back to the instructors here because ultimately the kids are gonna do what they're told. Mm -hmm. If you're going in as a six, seven, eight year old on all the way up until 13, 14, you know, you're just going to do what you're told and you're going to think things are good because the authority figures in your life say they're good and, and the same to be said of if they're bad. But Jake, that so then I was going back to, OK, well, then how can we measure and how can we show positive change in these in these different novel training uh, interventions that we're trying to kind of inject into this culture. Mm -hmm. And then Jake, you mentioned that case where the instructor now told the dancer, your, your positions are looking so much better. Like that scenario, if you could bottle that up somehow, but then you've got to feed it back to the instructor and say, Hey, you said mm -hmm. this dancer looked better, right? You said that to this dancer. Oh yeah, yeah. She looked great. Well, you know what we did? This, and, and so like you've got to package that you've got to come full circle that instructor has to be they have to know why that change occurred it was something to do that was different than what was being done before and then you can start to get those light bulbs and they can start to like let their guard down a little bit but like that oh my gosh you got to bottle that up that's gold right there you know those those scenarios you start racking those up and, and bringing them back you know to the to the origin that's huge no. that and their parent yeah 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 definitely. yeah because because parents also a lot of the times with the companies they're the ones paying tuition and if it's you know mom mom is a former dancer and she has expectations of how it should look if you make a change like that you also have to show them the positivity behind it as well because i i think some resistance and i'm speculating here you guys can can tell me if that's true i think some resistance that instructors would have in making wholesale changes in this manner would be the parents and the perception of the parents especially if they have some sort of a dance legacy to themselves where they look at the company and they're like well this is not how we did it why are you doing this i'm not paying you anymore this is ridiculous right <laughs> yeah like so you, i'm with quinn 100 you got to get it back to the source yeah. But we're also dealing with younger kids here too. So you got to get to the parents and get the parents to have that buy-in. Yeah. yeah, dance moms are Danielle can probably speak to the this. Worst. Dance moms, oh man, they're the worst. Yeah, I've given some lectures to dance students and their parents, and it's always the parents that are fighting me the whole time on anything related to resistance training because, like you said, so many of them pass down the art form to their kids and. I never did that. I never picked up a weight and I, I was fine. So why would you do anything different? Um, but it's yeah. the same conversation. You know, if they start to see change, mm -hmm. the, if the parent mentions it, grab onto that. 
you know, and, and foster and build that. And then the instructor to the parent, if you, if you get the instructor kind of seeing these changes too, the instructor can also be kind of on your side now or relay that to the parent. So it's going to, you know, it's a painful process for change. We're talking about behavior and, and belief change and like lots of layers <laughs> that interact with each other, you know, but um, you take those little victories and you grow them like the little seedlings, water it and fertilize it <laughs> with Noosa. And then with it'll Noosa. grow. People, people are not cars, but apparently they're trees. Is that what you're saying? Whatever plant, whatever you want. I, like I also cacti, I like cacti, but cacti. <laughs> Quinn, are you are you suggesting that we are that we should take into consideration the biological, psychological, and social components of of a dancer or an athlete? No, that's ridiculous. No, the five M's. We're all just five E's. Five E's. Oh. Five E's. Oh yeah. I thought you had made up a new model of like clinical. <laughs> just right now. Just did it. Just now. But yes, Jake, very much so. What a novel concept. How about it? It's not just hinges on a door. Turn the key, start to perform. Boom. Yeah, it's 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 a definitely an, an interesting place to be like in in the, the dance world right now because we do see and I guess extending it to kind of performing arts as a whole. Like when you look at the larger companies, right? They do have strength and conditioning professionals. When you look at group organizations like Cirque, they are treating their um, members like a pro athlete. Like they're getting nutrition consultation, they're getting, you know, customized strength and conditioning stuff. They're getting uh, rehabilitation services as needed. They're doing things to look at epidemiological rates and tracking like injuries over time and seeing if they can find trends. And hey, we did this and like this improved. We did that and this made it worse. Um, but it, I think it really does come back to this thing that we've talked about before, and that's like access. To, to one, education, access to coaches and instructors that um, have knowledge in these areas, and then trying to facilitate a community or an environment where you can work on these things. Because not every, and it's, it would be completely unrealistic to think that uh, somebody's going to listen to this podcast that owns a studio and go, yeah, we need to put four squat racks in there. You know? <laughs> But maybe, maybe someone listens to this and they go, "Hey, let's buy, let's buy a 35-pound kettlebell. Mm-hmm. Let's buy uh, two 15-pound kettlebells." You know, and it's just enough of a catalyst to hopefully pr- try and spark a little bit of change. And I know that, that that's like Danielle and I. Our whole thing with this is to try to, like, we from a marketing standpoint, we do a terrible job of like niching down, right? Like, we don't really have a, a set audience because we kind of we're trying to create a community where it's like healthcare providers and performing artists, right? Where we can kind of connect the dots between the two where it's, it's kind of a, a hodgepodge and a mix of both. We bring on a lot of different perspectives and stuff, but I think that when we're trying to change this community, we need to have different people's voices and perspectives and we need to be able to hopefully like link people together with different experts in the field and, and to try to create some sort of change, right? Because like our goal obviously is we would like to see uh, improved like culture, education, access to strength and conditioning stuff, and just like more longevity with the people that we work with, right? Like it's it's sad when we, ha- we look at uh, rates of like 
uh, athletic amenorrhea in ballet dancers and it's 50%, you know, we look at like how much, uh, how prevalent like reds is in those, in those groups. And I feel like not that that like resistance training is like the solution, but that like through education and kind of changing some of these inherent, uh, biases and like this traditionalist view then maybe we can do some stuff to help kind of change that. And then we can change some of those like staggering statistics. Cause that's, that's like scary from like a clinical standpoint to see like rates that high. Um, Cause it tells us, that definitely tells us that we're doing something wrong Yeah. Uh, or that there's something wrong with that culture. Yeah. I do want to bring up one point that parents have said to me relating to reds is that they're fearful of getting their kids in the gym because they think they'll just continue to over-exercise, which is the tendency of a lot of young dancers just to burn as many calories as they can. And I'll be honest, and hopefully my mom doesn't listen, but I remember going to the gym and just trying to run as much as I can just to burn calories. And I wasn't in there to lift weights, which maybe if we pointed them to do that, they would, but parents are fearful that they'll overextend themselves and go farther down the rabbit hole of getting into stress fractures or or amenorrhea or all those things that are so prominent, like Jake said. So what kind of education would you guys provide to parents or the students if they're afraid of that? You know, it's funny that you said that because I was thinking as I was trying to, in my head, I was trying to make a case for this. It's basically exactly what you're asking. (laughs) And what are all the angles? Well, one of them is that there's an opportunity cost to everything that you do, meaning if you if you spend your time doing something, that's now time that you can't spend doing other things. So mm-hmm. there's but but then I, I was circling back in my head was like, well, what if they just stack weight strength training on top of what they're already doing and they don't actually subtract anything away? Right. Which is which is what you're getting at. But I, my yeah. thought then goes like the example that you just gave, I would go to the gym and then I would just run on the treadmill. Well, now instead of going to the gym and just pounding on the treadmill, you are lifting weights instead. So there is, if you can make that change where you subtract something and then strength training goes there, now there's, it's an opportunity cost in a positive way where you're doing something that's actually going to kind of like start filling in the gaps in the concrete a little bit as opposed to just continuing to pile on. So you can, you can maybe that's an education point that you can use this op, this concept of opportunity cost, or you can kind of spin it however you want, but Mm-hmm. These things are these things are a lot of the same, and they're fought, and they're perpetuating some of these negative physiological reactions, or however you want to say that. This thing over here is providing something that's different than all of those other things. Your dance practice now you're just going to pound the treadmill and run for an hour. That's all kind of getting mixed in here in this bucket, but now we've got something that provides the body something different over here, and just by definition of opportunity cost, you have to take a little bit out of this piece of the pie in order to do that, that thing. So it works both ways. Um, I don't know if, if that's helpful yeah. at all, but that's actually what was going in my head as, as you, before you asked the question seemed relevant. Yeah. And I, it, go ahead. For me, I think the other thing that it allows is adding something. It, the risk is addition. The risk is like, okay, you're already doing all these things, and now we're going to add something else. Like, how are you going to keep my my child balanced in regards to what's going on? If they're already physically active, adding some physical activity, even if it's a different thing, is still along the same activity threshold. 
Now, if we want to stop reds, we have to start talking about nutrition and sleep and recovery, and especially for young girls, amenorrhea and some other things that that are difficulties with that, that that process. That's a hard conversation to start off with. So if we start with a lower barrier of entry, like adding some strength training, then it opens the door for us to have longer conversations about the risks of other things. Maybe dialing up your nutrition a little bit, focusing on that, maybe focusing on some sleep because now we have to look at recovery. So as a parent, if if somebody came to me with my little girl at six years old, or later on in life and said, hey, look, we want to add a portion to the program mainly so that we can have a little bit more contact with the kids on a different level and open the door for us to have conversations that are going to benefit their health over the long term, like about sleep and food and recovery so we can avoid these kinds of things down the road. I think that's where this can create some of that buy-in as opposed to, like you said before, education just kind of falls flat. If you just throw at them, hey, you need to change your nutrition stuff, like that, it, it typically falls on deaf ears. Uh, so it's it's getting. I think the strength training opens the, uh, the door a little bit for us to have bigger conversations down the road. I agree. It's. I mean, it's it's really all about like connecting the dots, right? And not even like you connecting the dots for that population. It's being able to provide an environment or value where they go, oh, hey, this this does make sense, right? Like, even though we're talking about, like, kettlebells, like, if we if we do some of this, like, that's going to help me reduce my risk for osteoporosis or maybe help me improve my or decrease my risk of potential injury. Like, if we can start getting some of these big picture, like, scary things that everyone's worried about and try to find a way where we can use, as you said, like a lower barrier or lower lower entry point. That like leads to all that stuff and opens the door for a lot of these discussions. I mean, I, I do think that that's like a huge positive thing. Well, and if you're Jacob, the um, case that you mentioned where the, the dancer came to you and said, "Hey, my instructor said this." Imagine if the in, if the instructor now sees that in the studio based on the kettlebell work that they did or something like that. Now it's now it's like in, on their home turf, these changes are occurring. You know, you you mentioned it. They have to come to their own epiphany, but we're like setting the stage, so to speak, and the environment and kind of like nudging them that direction. And then they're like, oh my God. And then secondarily, you're getting the benefits of bone density, what, you know, all the benefits of resistance training that provides it just because they're doing it. Like those, as the, mm-hmm. as the doctors, we're like, yes, from their perspective, it's like, oh, this is helping my dance. Because even, the, you know, stress fractures and these types of things, I mean, we can have logical conversations where we say, well, you know, your bones respond to mechanical load in a positive way. They respond to mechanical load in a negative way if the load is surpassing their ability to to adapt to the load. And that's literally anything. So you can just, you keep having these conversations about the same thing, whether it's muscle or bone or tendon. And it's just kind of stays on that surface level. But if you can get them to just see again, how it relates to their performance, then they will start to listen. I think like the, that the light bulb will turn on and now they'll be a little bit more open to all these other conversations. The health is obviously first and foremost from our perspective and, and hopefully from the parents. I don't know if that's the case in, in reality, like they may say it, but then they still push their kid to train 20 hours a week. So 
it's this it's this interplay between trying to like pound education and like medical knowledge into their head versus those benefits come just by them doing it. So like get them to do it based on things they care about. And then you can start to, now you have some leverage and some traction to kind of steer the ship. Like John was saying for everything else, the door has been opened. Mm -hmm. And that's like, ultimately like that's one of my big like life goals would be if I can create some sort of change and positively affect like an entire like generation, at least from a community perspective of like young female athletes where we can set them up with like knowledge, empowerment and like access to these things. Not that, you know, like you said, not that I'm just like beating them over the head with like a science book, but where they can like connect the dots for themselves and be in an environment where we're fostering that independence and like and growth just inherently. They're like, what does that do down the road? Like, does that then create a larger ripple effect of like culture where like they have more advocacy for themselves and, and are able to speak up, you know, when they're working with medical professionals or other stuff later in life, like throughout their career as a dancer, is that going to help them, you know, realize from a long-term uh, like longevity perspective that they can continue to go if they're managing things like nutrition, sleep, and like, uh, you know, overall, like, um, activity participation. And is that going to then trickle down to like their kids, you know, like, mm -hmm. and that, that's, that's like ultimately like my thing with this community is like, that's what I want to do, you know? And if the entry point is just finding a way to show them that like these things are beneficial and kind of like flip the script on them, mm -hmm. then, you know, I'm, I'm down. I'm going to be. The seed is, Oh, your turnout looks better today. Mm -hmm. 20 years later. The, the mom is saying, you need to lift weights. Yeah. 12-year-old daughter. That's the goal. Help me dance. Deadlift. <laughs> yeah. And, Deadlift. you know, as we're healthcare providers and not, you know, we're in this, we're in this time of no, the time of nocebo where we, we let the, the pendulum swing to the point where we're afraid to say words. But if we have data in front of us about reds and about these other things, about bone density issues and, and nutritional deficits and these types of things. And we believe as healthcare providers that increases your risk for X, Y, Z. You're in your lifestyle and your behavior, right? Currently the way that you treat your body is trending in this direction. That's a conversation that should be had. You know, there the are, there are risks to these types of things. And, you know, for the, the 10 year old dancer, it, it's, the, it's the parents that we're talking about and it's the instructor. And what we can do is educate on those risks and be, we could put it as bluntly as it needs to be put. I don't think there needs to be any fear. If, if the data is showing us that this is, this is what it is, you know, these types of lifestyles lead to this type of thing, which affects your body in a negative X, Y, Z manner. It's just, it is what it is. Now that doesn't mean that your education is going to change that, but I do think it's our responsibility to educate as openly and as transparently about the risks of these types of things. Because I work with, you know, we work with female weightlifters, high level, who have a lot of muscle mass, who deal with amenorrhea. They have muscles and they lift weights and they have amenorrhea. This is this goes beyond strength training. So, mm -hmm. but we have this conversation. Um, so, and these are kids we're talking about. Yeah. That we're talking about in this discussion. So it's it, it, it there's both sides of it. Um, not wanting to go into that realm is, is like in regards to, oh, I don't want to be fear mongering here, but 
um, we don't want to be silent about that stuff either because it's, it's a big deal. So whether they listen or not, right. Different conversation. And, and I'll say, I think, I think a lot of people, I, I Oh man, I'm terrible at sometimes giving people too much credit, but I feel a lot of people know that there are risks involved, and a lot of the times they just don't reflect upon what they're doing enough to to realize it. You know, we we see that with uh, smokers and and you know, people who consume too much alcohol and like I love my whiskey. I know it's probably not always the greatest thing in the world, uh, but I can admit that to myself. And that's where using things like uh, motivational interviewing and that sort of thing to to just get people to be a little bit more reflective into the process um, and, and say like yeah yeah you know there are risks and what do those risks do and and then sometimes we are gonna have to be blunt and be like hey look this, this is the situation. If this trend continues, these are the risks that are involved with it. And I'm not saying that your bones are going to snap in half, but <laughs> you know, you don't have to say that. And I think that's where the line gets crossed, Quinn, with, with what you're talking about with like fear mongering. But you can explain risks in a very professional way and say, look, this is what we see. This is the data that we have. And the way you're trending right now, you put yourself at a higher risk for these things that we want to avoid and take it from there. It's also not, a, it's not a don't do this. Risk is risk. Risk mm -hmm. and probability are just that. It's, mm -hmm. it's not a conversation of you should stop. Because in order to be, if your goal is to be a high level dance, if you're a dancer, if your goal is to, I want to be a professional dancer. I want this to be my career. I want, this is going to pay my bills. That's my goal. I've invested so many years into this. Their, their performance, I don't care what it is, performance and health, are inverse re related to some extent, no matter what type of performer you're talking about. So there are, like John said, there's inherent risks for any high level uh, athlete or whatever yeah. it is. It's still a conversation to be had when you're starting to see some of these things trending in, in certain directions. There's one thing for you know American football players to say, yeah, it's risky to step on the field because I'm gonna be in high speed collisions. But it's another thing to put your body in a state where now you're changing your physiology that could potentially be having this kind of spiral effect down the line that's based on data doesn't mean don't do it but there's also a chance we can have the bet we can we can have positives from both ends we can change certain aspects of your lifestyle to clean that up a little bit and we can also inject some interventions to actually boost your performance and longevity it's like it may not be this fool's choice of one or the other. Um, that's like, you know, that's like big picture. But it, it sounds like to me after having this conversation with you guys that it, we can it, it seems possible. That you don't have to put your body in, in such a precarious situation from a long term and you can still get to the heights of this of the activity. I want to say sport of the sport that you want to. I could be wrong about that, though. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. And I think it. I think it is. It is changing slowly, but I think that because of you know the the discussion that we we didn't really get to the whole like athletic identity, I think that that kind of sets up the dance community a little bit behind the curve mm. when it comes to adopting a lot of stress science and just like other you know sport practice. Because for so long, like part of that cultural identity is, no, no, we're not athletes. We're dancers. This is an art form. 
and yes, it is like, it is a very high level of self-expression and like artistry, mm-hmm. but at the same time, like you can't say that those people aren't incredible athletes, right? Like if you watch some, some like dance performances or, or ballets, like that stuff's crazy, you know, like people are doing like multiple spins in the air and like very high jumps. And, you know, even with some of the male roles, like throwing people in the air and catching them, like there's a lot of athleticism that goes on. Yeah. But it's just like because of that, like inherent cultural identity, I think that's what like what what who am I as a dancer and what is the dance community like? That's kind of set, I think, the whole system up for not having all of the stuff that we talked about, you know? And I think that's kind of the crux of it. Like if we, if we can maybe change the, like a small part of that identity or small part of that culture, that maybe things like stress science literature and applying like other sport practice stuff, like off season training and, and, you know, using more of a, um, training methodology, like going up to a performance that like matches the metabolic energy demands that, that someone's going to need instead of just using, you know, the status quo of like, here's eight counts, here's 32 counts. And we're just going to repeat that over and over and over. And then going from like a, uh, you know, small 30 second burst of activity to like a 20 minute performance. You know, I think a lot of the structure of how we do stuff in the dance world doesn't really reflect like the best available evidence or the science or like how we in theory should be doing things. And I think a lot of that falls back to just like, what is the identity of, of a dancer? What's the identity of, of the dance, like of dance culture. Yeah. It's really interesting. You bring that up because for a long time, my mom and dad had season tickets to the Hippodrome and they'd share it with Nikki and I. So we drive into Baltimore and we go and the very first show we watched was dirty dancing huge dance numbers. I mean, just absolutely awesome. Nikki loved the show because I mean, it was dirty dancing. It's one of her favorite movies ever. I literally walked in there like it was going to be a hockey game because I, I knew like, I'm going to see some of the most athletic performances live that you can see. Like that's when I go to those shows, that's what I'm there. Like I give me like a, a towel to swing around because the 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 stuff these people pull off is incredible. Like the height that they're reaching and the positions and as a spectator, to me it is an athletic performance that I'm gonna watch that actually that has a story behind it, and that's great. But the dance number, that's what I'm there for. And like I get I get so much enjoyment out of watching it, just like I'd be going to a football game or watching a live hockey game. And it's interesting you bring up that athletic identity because to me as a spectator that's how I view it. And yeah. at that level, they are like the best athletes that, that I get to see. They're the pros. And it's it's so exciting to me. And just to, to know that there's that disparity between what they view themselves as and what I as a spectator view them as. It's, it's just that's an interesting like dynamic for me. Yeah, I, th- I think it comes from. Like the point that if they were an athlete, that would take away from their artistry. I think that's where the issue lies is. I would definitely consider dancers athletes, but does that take away from their artistic nature that they've trained for for so many years? And then when they say they're not, well, if they say they're an athlete, then I think they need to recognize that they have to fuel their body like an athlete does, or they need to train like an athlete does. And knowing that they don't do that, they also don't quantify themselves as an athlete. So I think 
that's part of the issue is just taking away from their artistry, which is so like personal to them because dance really comes from expression first. And then the movement that comes on top of that is the athletic component. So I think that's where it's different than other athletes that we see. And that's why they have issue with it. Which I think, I think that's just a weird dichotomy, right? Like Mm -hmm. we, it's something that I feel like, and for whatever reason, it's become this like dichotomous thing where it's like, I'm either an artist or an athlete. Like, why can't you be both? Mm-hmm. You know, like those two things are not mutually exclusive. Like you can be an incredible, like physical, powerful, explosive athlete and also be doing something that is incredibly artistic and expressive. Right. Like those two things, they're not they're not exclusive. But I think like that's something that we need to change because it's not it's not one or the other. Like you can be both. Yeah. Oh Man, I don't want Quinn's head to explode here a little bit, but watch a hook grip video of a weightlifter and tell me that's not art. Like, and I understand, like, I'm not trying to devalue the definition of art here, but when I look at sports, especially at the highest level, like there is skill, everybody, I always tell the weightlifters and powerlifters that I coach that everybody has their own funk, like their own little deviations from what would be considered optimal. And it's, it's those little things, especially at the highest levels that that expression and skill and all of it comes out at at one time. And especially if you put it through slow motion, it's just absolutely incredible to see. And and that's why I put them in the same, the same box because it, it, it is such an expression to see some of these high level weightlifters and, and how, you know, weird so some of the stuff is executed that you wouldn't typically see in other lifters uh a, a sport that's near and dear to my heart hockey like there's a black disc that is no bigger than your wallet sliding around on ice and people can take a six foot long stick and like flip that thing off. like come on that's insane and so is some of the stuff that that dancers do and i put that on the same level it's just it's all incredible to me, especially at the highest levels. John, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but are you saying that it's both an art and a science? Yeah. Yes. I think Derek Derek Miles just entered the chat. Uh oh. No. Well you gotta have the goods to be able to express the art, right? Yeah. Where do the goods true. come from? Right. They've been trained. I mean, skill acquisition. Whether the whether the dancer refer, thinks of themselves as an athlete or not, they had to do something to train themselves into what they are today. That's adaptation. They just happen to do it in a certain way. Um, but the, you know, they weren't their level of artistry when they were first learning their expression. They probably couldn't express their artistry as they saw it in their head. Mm. Right. They develop those qualities. And so, you know, at the base level, we you can help your artistry. You can help your expression by by developing the biological and physiological goods. And, you know, there are novel ways to do that that also probably have secondary and tertiary benefits as well that we've discussed, too. So, yeah, Yeah. no science, just art Yeah, or science. (laughs) 
<laughs> and and obviously like like from the the discussion of like athletic identity in the performing arts community i'm not gonna like yell at a dancer that comes in and be like you're an athlete yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> however they choose to identify themselves like and whatever they view of themselves like obviously i'm gonna support that right i'm gonna foster that but my hope and is as a clinician and a strength and conditioning coach they're like when we talk about optimizing your performance on stage that I can create a conversation and show value in some of these other things that may seem very novel to them with the the idea that like these things can can ultimately make you better, right? That you can have more expressive artistry on stage by just doing something that's a little bit different, right? Providing your body with a novel stimulus that helps you get stronger, maybe promote more muscular endurance. Uh, reduce injury risk, you know, help you understand how to navigate maybe things like nutrition recovery just a little bit better. So that when we start looking at those variables, like when you're at like a high level, like those things are going to be like the difference between, you know, just being a good dancer and being like a great dancer. Yeah. It's not replacing their, their identity artistic expression. It's enhancing it. Mm -hmm. Right. All right. We're going to ask you guys two quick questions real quick. Uh, what you got, Danielle? Lightning round. Okay. All right. So for each of you, what is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? I feel like it has to revolve around yogurt. Like you like, can't say Nusa. Like <laughs> well, that's, well, that wouldn't be an answer to the question because that's not an unusual habit. That's just normal for a human. But um, so I've got an empty jar of pickles on my counter right now because I just cleaned off. Uh, the juice uh, earlier this morning. So like, I really love pickles. And one of my favorite parts is after I get done with the actual pickles and I just drink the juice out of the jar, like a cup of cup of Kool-Aid. This um, makes so much sense. <laughs> this is why you like so gross. Oh my God. But it's amazing. I'm a, I'm like a salty savory kind of guy and that's pickle juice doesn't get any more, you know, salty than that. So that's oh. what I like. That's a weird thing. That Maybe is. Not. So what, what, repeat the question again, unusual habit or what? An absurd thing that you love. An absurd thing that I love? So like pickle juice. Uh, can I answer Jacob Manley? Oh. Oh. That's not absurd. Oh. That's not, that's mean, not absurd. His, his love for me is absurd. It oh. is. It is crazy. <laughs> um, man, an absurd thing that I love. This, this is actually a really hard question. Uh, oh, well, from a training standpoint, the bar that everyone hates is the safety squat bar. And it is by far my favorite thing to train on now. I, I don't think that's like the most absurd thing in the entire world. Uh, but I, most people curse that thing, and I absolutely love it. So um, I also really love to cut my grass. Do you have a push, push mower? Or? Yeah, a riding mower, man. That's, oh, well, that's why. Yeah, you're like head. taking a ride. It's the best, you know, just sit back. Nobody bothers me because the blade is running and, you know, listen to my music and just cut the grass. It's great. I, I do have to agree with you, though. I think one of the best purchases that I've ever made for myself was an Elite FTS yoke bar. It's like that best. thing is just it's so awesome. And like as right now, like Kevin and I are trying to work on my like bench technique. And I like I've gotten to the point from it, which is a huge PR for me, like being able to get back under a straight bar and squat again for because I didn't touch a straight bar for like three years. 
but like just being able to use that um, as a variation and even as a main, you know, lift for programming it, whatever. I love the safety squat bar so much. Huge, like probably again the best like four hundred dollars I've spent in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. For our non barbell sport athletes, we use the safety squat bar as much for squats as the as the straight bar. I mean, it's as heavy and it's just a little bit more forgiving. Yeah. All right, you ready for mine? Yeah. How has a failure or apparent failure set you up for later success? Do you have a favorite failure of yours? Mm. When you you look like just very perplexed. I, I yeah. mean, I <laughs> I fail constantly, so oh, it's what? really hard to parse it out. Are you going through like a top ten list right now? <laughs> yeah, like top fifty. <laughs> I'm like looking around. What did I mess up? <laughs> John, you go first since I went first last time. So I mean, I think. I'll be honest. I, I've mentioned this one before a couple times. I know I, I think I mentioned it on the first clinical athlete podcast I ever did. Um, but one of the failures that was a big pivotal point in my life was when I was in grad school and my lack of communication with the strength and conditioning staff that led to a mini revolt against them by the baseball team that was really not uh, – supported by me but it was it looked as though it was supported by me so they they weren't big fans of what the strength staff was doing they came and asked me about this guy mark Berstegen. one of them bought the book and right across my office in the baseball stadium was another weight room and basically all of them started going over there and doing their own thing while i was in the building because they knew that that the door would be open and for me it was just one of those things i was young i you know, didn't really kind of speak up or anything. And, you know, I thought the program they were doing was pretty good, but that looks really bad in a collegiate setting. Uh, and man, I got, I got hosed, man. I almost got fired from my graduate assistantship uh, over that. And it, it, it was pivotal for me because it became one of those moments where I was like, you know what you need to, you need to communicate. You need to stand up for, you know, both ends of the fence and figure out how to effectively communicate with both sides as opposed to um, just kind of sitting there and watching. And it's meant a lot for my career just because uh, it's made me a little bit more outspoken and, and really forced me to ask the question early as opposed to waiting. Yeah, I think similarly, this was more of a, like an introspection, but as a younger, you know, before PT school as kind of like strength conditioning coach was my track. And um, just thinking that I knew a whole lot more than I did. And when you know a little bit, you know everything, right? And, And in those years, I kind of pushed away mentorship opportunities that looking back, I think would have, I don't know what would have happened, but you know, potentially just kind of life shaping those types of things. And I push a lot of those opportunities away with ego and to just kind of pursue um, you know, selfish endeavors and these types of things. And I, what I think is as I grew up and my frontal lobe finally uh, developed to some extent, then or now I can make decisions as an actual adult or at least think about things like that. I look, I, I I think it's shaped me to just now almost just crave um, 
my colleagues and 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 interaction and, and constant learning from other people and having these just groups of, of people that I can bounce ideas off of and learn from and communicate with, that was not what I how I did life back as a really early professional. And just the thinking about like clinical athlete as its community kind of spawned off of that. Um, just bringing together, you know, all of these different people, but it was after realization of how important that stuff is. And it's uh, something I regret to this day of not having a formal mentor in kind of the traditional sense. Um, Cause I very much subscribe to that kind of craftsman idea of mentorship and, and mastery, but I didn't live it early in my student and early in my career, but it's, it's shaped now kind of how I, my outlook and, and how I value my colleagues now. So I think it's, I think there's been some benefit to that. Once again, Quinn, I, I agree with you that it's an art and a science. <laughs> yes, sir. I'm with you. Bumper stickers. Bumper Michael Motto's head, if he's listening to this, his head like literally just exploded. We've compared people to cars and trees, and now we're saying it's an art and a science. <laughs> Next thing you know, we're going to start separating the nervous system from the rest of the body oh. and looking at people as just joints. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> um, John, Quinn, we get, we cannot thank you enough for taking the time to be on our show. It was awesome. Uh, and if anyone listening to the show wants to get in contact with you guys, what's the best way that they can do that? Uh, Quinn, what, how can people reach out to you? Yeah, you know, one of the benefits of having a kind of a weird name is you can just put in Quinn Hennick and Instagram. I should pop right up. Like, I don't know any other Quinn Hennicks, but it's Quinn. It's Quinn.Hennick, DPT on Instagram. My email is Quinn at clinicalathlete.com. Uh, the, on the website, clinicalathlete.com, I've got my directory profile on there on the on the map. And so you can send private messages on straight from Clinical Athlete website. And those are probably the best ways. Um, I try to get to every message and every email. It may not be the actual answer that you were wanting, and it may not be in the timeline that you wanted it to be, but I try to get to everyone. And John, what, uh, how do we reach you? Uh, I'm the most active on Instagram. That's at rebuild stronger online. Um, you can also hit me up on email. That's John at clinicalathlete.com. And if you like, kind of the stuff we were talking about today. You can join the forum on Clinical Athlete. That's where a lot of this information is housed and, and constantly being discussed by other clinicians. So I highly suggest heading over there and, and checking it out because discussions like this are happening every day in that forum. Yeah, I, I feel like I need to actually be active on there again. Um, I've I've taken my my like time to, to be in a cocoon and and emerge as a new beautiful body tempering rejecting butterfly. Um, That's kind of the natural progression of it, though, man. Like you, no, seriously, like you come, you you blossom, and then you start sharing yeah. to the world, you know. And there's there's only so much time in the day, but we do miss you. I'll be I'll be back on, if, even if it's not to contribute like actual knowledge, just as a troll. <laughs> um, those are needed too. I, I Just keep it fun. Yeah, no, I'm, that's that's my. I feel like that's my role in life. This, are, <laughs> is there a meme restriction on the clinical athlete forum? Like, can I post my my memes oh, on there? Oh, no, yeah, absolutely. Oh, you All probably right. can't talk about Chobani that much, you know. No, I mean, we'll just delete my comments. <laughs> yeah, censor, <laughs> yeah, that's 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 where censorship comes in. That's the only. 
hard line I draw. We just we'll keep starting at... a Giovanni thread over and over. <laughs> the both of us see if Quinn can erase them fast enough. It's just redacted. Like I look on my profile page and everything's blacked out. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then Danielle, how can people reach out to you? So my Instagram handle is Danielle Anise underscore DPT. So it looks like Danielle A Nice underscore DPT. I mean, I don't know what your guys' thoughts are, but I think she's a pretty nice PT. Yeah. Pretty yes. nice. Agreed. Very, very pleasant, very sociable, very intelligent. Um, it's just too. if she put all of those things in the handle, it'd be really long. <laughs> I'm really cocky, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say, too, guys, it's really Lexus. cool what you're doing here. You know, the, we said, like, oh, the conversation, just having the conversations is the first step to a lot of this stuff. You know, just, just putting it out there and just having, if you're trying to go after a certain population and trying to get them to, uh, you know, to listen, they got to have something to listen to. So it, it's pretty cool to see uh, you guys doing this stuff. So keep it up. It's awesome. It really is. Really Thank is. You. Underserved population for sure. And you can tell you two really have some passion about it. So it's it's really fun to see this kind of blossoming for you. Thanks. Thanks. If you guys want to view some of my previously mentioned uh, poor quality rehab memes, um, you can find me on Instagram at TMD underscore the movement docs. Thank you guys again for tuning in this week where we spoke with John Flagg and Quinn Hennock. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, complaints, or a topic that you'd like us to discuss, shoot us an email at dbalpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, everybody, remember, don't break a leg.